Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and I'm your host. You can find me on livetoone110.com. And today we have Mike Mutzel on the podcast of mikemutzel.com. And we're going to be talking about how your gut bugs are making you fat and preventing you from losing weight because it's not all about calories and how much you work out, not by a long shot. So I know this is going to be a podcast you guys are going to be really, really interested in. Um, but first we have to do the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature and for your entertainment purposes. Uh, please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment or diet that we suggest on the show. You guys can sign up for my free Live to 110 by Weighing Less e-guide and five free modern paleo survival guides that gives you a preview of coming attractions of my upcoming book, The Modern Paleo Survival Guide, all about diet, detox, and lifestyle. Help you survive and thrive to 110. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's my little slogan. And so I'm also uh, really excited. I am speaking at the Bulletproof Conference uh, put on by Dave Asprey. Um, I'm really, really excited. I'm going to be talking about infrared saunas. As we know, Dave Asprey loves little uh, biohacking uh, doohickeys and uh, technology. So I'm going to be there talking about infrared saunas. You guys hear me talk about that a lot on the show because it's one of the best ways that you can detox heavy metals and chemicals and uh, improve your health. Um, so I'm very uh, honored to be among the peers who are going to be speaking at the conference, um, like uh, Donna Gates and JJ Virgin and Dave Asprey himself. Very thrilled. It's going to be happening September 26th or the 28th at the Pasadena Convention Center, uh, right outside of Los Angeles. So definitely go check that out at bulletproofconference.com. Our guest, Mike Mutzel, has a BS in biology from uh, Western Washington University and is completing his MS in clinical nutrition from the University of Bridgeport. So am I. <laughs> awesome. How <laughs> and, far along are you, Wendy? Uh, I just started. Okay, just cool. Started. Not, yeah. too, not too far along. And uh, he's also a graduate of the Institute for Functional Medicines, Applying Functional Medicine in Clinical Practice. And he's an independent consultant for one of the world's leading professional uh, professional nutrition companies. And in April of 2014, Mike launched his first book, which we're going to be talking about today, The Belly Fat Effect, the real secret about how your diet, intestinal health, and gut bacteria help you burn fat. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Mike. Thanks so much, Wendy. Pleasure to be here. I'm honored. And also, congratulations for speaking at Dave's conference. I'm a huge fan of Dave's work, and he and I did a webinar together, and so that you're going to rock that. I know it. So congratulations. Yeah, I love Dave. He's so good. He's Great so, guy. so articulate and well-spoken and intelligent, and I've had him on my podcast, too, and he's, I, I love him. He's great. Awesome. So what about, let's get, talk about you. So sure. why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and you know, how you became interested in nutrition? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm one of these lifelong students, like probably like yourself, right? And uh, I actually, when I was 15, wanted to like put on more muscle. I was kind of skinny and starting to play football and went into a GNC and, and spoke with a gentleman. He knew everything about nutrition. I asked him about protein. He said, no, you want this protein because of the amino acid structure and how it's broken down. And I said, like, you know what? I want to be like that. I want to be one of these people where I, an encyclopedia. I just, I just want to know for my own health, and then if I can, you know, make a career out of it, great. And so that's kind of how it started, really. And um, 
I didn't really study much in school and, but, uh, off, uh, you know, outside of school, you know, high school, I'm talking about, I would read all these different bodybuilding books and fitness magazines. And, you know, once I got to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I took a biology class, fell in love and that's where it all started. So, um, and then after that, I wanted to go to medical school. So I was, uh, took the MCAT, which is the medical school aptitude test, and was fortunate enough to work with an integrative doctor in Colorado by the name of Gerard Guillory, started working with his overweight complex, metabolic syndrome, insulin-resistant patients. And what I cl- quickly realized was the calorie myth that I had been reading about and hearing about that was so pervasive, not only in academia, but fitness just didn't pan out. It didn't make sense. And these overweight individuals had tons of GI issues, tons of autoimmune issues, a lot of inflammatory conditions going on. So it caused me to go back to the academic, you know, medical school research libraries and dive into that and explore these different connections. And we'll dive into that, but uh, it's no, you know, coincidence that a lot of overweight individuals have GI issues. They have gut bacterial imbalances. They have imbalances in the intestinal release of different hormones that govern fat burning and so on. So it's just open up a whole can of worms that uh, turned out to be a seven-year book project, which, you know, I published, as you mentioned, in April. So, Well, tell us a little bit about that. What, what, uh, what is your book talking about and uh, what I mean, it took seven years. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was a long time. I mean, you know, it first started out as just like a kind of a diet recipe side, what I call this two-dimensional metabolism, talking about insulin and cortisol, and we know how stress affects sleep and stress affects fat burning and belly fat. And then it, you know, morphed into this whole gut connection. And then this connection that I would love to talk about later between the immune system and the metabolic system and how if you um, eat inflammatory foods or you have an inflammatory lifestyle, you can't burn fat. And we can talk about the reasons why that is. But yeah, you know, I really just wanted to, there's a huge chasm between what's going on in academia and what makes it to the public and even the healthcare practitioners. There's so much great research out there, but let's face it, it's a little complex to understand and interpret. It's very timely. Uh, but I enjoy it. So the book was like, all right, I'm just going to break down all these complex trends and ideas and paradigms that are emerging in the, you know, the medical literature and, um, and look at the different clinical studies and interpret that or translate that to, so that healthcare practitioners and laymen that want that next level, you know, there's so many books out there, Wendy, as you know, that it's all about, you know, there's a little bit of content and a lot of recipes and you can get recipes anywhere. Food's great. You know, I'm a, I love to cook. My wife's a good cook, but I think the science is what people are looking for because a lot of people are eating the right foods, but still not losing weight. So that was, so the book back to answer your specific question is about our metabolism in general. So insulin, cortisol, you know, blood sugar, uh, all that fat burning, mitochondria and so forth. But then the involvement with how food interacts with the 100 trillion single-celled microbes that inhabit our intestine. Collectively, we call them the gut microbiome. And this organ, it's really actually in literature, they call it the forgotten organ because it has the metabolic activity of one of the most metabolically active organs in our body called the liver. So that's how active these, these collective, this collective organism is. The gut microbiome offers us an additional 6,300 and some odd different metabolic functions. So from detox to synthesis of lipids to helping to break down healthy foods, chocolate, cocoa polyphenols, blueberries, raspberries, pomegranate. If you didn't have your gut microbiome, you couldn't actually absorb all these healthy foods. So they're really necessary. And the problem occurs when we 
you know, veer off our, you know, our roots and heritage and eat processed, commercially prepared uh, carbohydrates and fats. That's really where the problem becomes because you tend to fuel bugs that um, don't have complex enzymatic capacity. So without being a microbiologist, you have different phyla, different types of bugs. They're broadly categorized into the firmicutes, which if you get a stool test would be listed under fat bugs, so to speak. And then you have this other phyla of different bugs that will fall into that bifidobacterium and so forth that are so-called bacteroidetes. And the bacteroidetes actually contain enzyme systems that help to break down polyphenols. So complex co compounds found in green tea, curcumin, resveratrol, you know, spinach, and so on are called polyphenols. And those healthy bacteria thrive off that. So just eating a color-rich diet that from fruits and vegetables and even nuts and seeds will help to foster the growth of good bacteria. Whilst if you, you know, stick to the standard American diet, you're going to, you know, selectively downregulate those healthy bugs and grow bad bugs. And that can cause a low-grade inflammation that's linked with leptin resistance and leaky gut and all these nasty things. Does uh, eating chocolate help grow good bugs? It does, yeah. <laughs> Several studies have shown chocolate increases bifidobacterium. Yeah. Um, so chocolate, blueberries, any polyphenol, there are studies actually red wine. Now there's the caveat. We don't want our audience to just go out and drink a bottle of red wine. So this is between one and two glasses and they looked at Cabernet, Merlot, and Pinot Noir. So if you're going to choose alcohol, which I've recently tried to avoid it just because cognitively I noticed, you know, you kind of get a foggy brain. At least I do when I drink even just one glass of wine. So I just keep it to, you know, on occasional basis. But is that the point though? <laughs> it's about, yeah, about the point. It's moderation, <laughs> including moderation. Yeah. Right? yeah. I know my gut bugs are definitely eating a lot of chocolate, <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I just have a little bit every day, but I have this raw chocolate that I love. It's really healthy. So it's, try not to feel too guilty about it. <laughs> So how do overweight issues and digestive problems go hand in hand? Yeah. So at first I used to think that was somewhat happenstance, you know, that maybe uh, overweight individuals are eating literally too much volume of food and that was creating like sheer stress on the intestine. But as it turns out, a lot of, there's a higher prevalence of what we call functional gastrointestinal disorders with individuals that are overweight or obese and anything from dyspepsia, gas, bloating, uh, you know, bad breath, foul stool, uh, weird uh, motility issues and so on. And it really comes down to just the gut ecology and uh, the hormones that are released from the gut and the different neurotransmitters that are innervating the GI tract. So our nervous system that's running on autopilot in the background is kind of partitioned into two different types. We have the sympathetic nervous system, which is the drive, the fight or flight response, which your listeners probably know about. And then the other uh, component of the nervous system is a parasympathetic response. And that's really when we're, you know, rest, digest, and procreate. And so when we're doing our heart math and our mindful-based meditation and so forth, we're in that calm state. Well, it turns out that overweight individuals tend to be more in that sympathetic overdrive. So they're, you know, from there's many components going on, but the overdrive of the autonomic nervous system may lead to less, um, you know, nerves innervating the GI tract, and so maybe not getting as much uh, central nervous system energy. So therefore, you know, digestive products are not going to be released properly. Motility issues are going to be a challenge. So things are you know, sitting there fermenting, creating secondary byproducts. So that's just one example of that. But again, you know, it's a kind of a feed forward cycle and we don't know what's the chicken, what's the egg, you know, does overweight issues cause GI challenges or do initial GI disturbances? We can talk about things like birthing method and 
delivery and, and uh, breast milk. But um, I think it's a, a combination of the two. And the bottom line is there's a higher prevalence with GI disorders uh, in overweight individuals. And uh, when individuals change their diet, you know, and embark on these high fiber, high polyphenol diets, they not only improve their GI issues, but they lose weight. So the take home message is the fix will improve both. Okay. So can you burn, uh, you know, are you able to, I know inflammation is a big issue um, in our society today because of our diet and uh, stress and other issues, heavy metals, chemical toxicity and things like that. How does that uh, inflammation play a role in people not being able to lose weight? That's a fantastic question. So um, I think you probably heard this on Sean Croxton's show, but um, researchers at Harvard have shown that the immune system and the metabolic system are like yin and yang, and they really communicate. And um, immunology tends to scare people because it's complex and so on, but it's really actually quite simple. Uh, the The bottom line is that when you're inflamed, your immune system pivots to uh, a more of a sugar burning state and sugar burning. Um, it, sugar is a very quick uh, fuel to break down. It creates a lot of instant energy very fast. I like to make the analogy that it's like a sprinter. It's short and sweet. And so when your immune system is being stimulated, it's going to reprogram the body's metabolism to foster to, to foster that sugar burning state. Now, in contrast, if you have a healthy inflammatory, uh, you know, healthy inflammatory response, you don't have inflammation, you're in a state of uh, hormesis, so to speak. Well, the, your immune system is going to thrive off fat burning. That's more of like an adaptogenic, a tolerant anti-inflammatory state. And so what happens is that when we get inflamed, we just pivot our immune system and our metabolic system out of fat burning mode into sugar burning mode. And that's why it's really important. I think a huge missing link when it comes to weight related issues is people are just so focused on their metabolism, so to speak, calories and, and meal timing and everything, which is a huge piece of the puzzle, no question. But if you have low grade inflammation or you're eating inflammatory foods, which would be anything that comes, in my opinion, a box bag or a can, you know, if it's not real food, then that can create low grade inflammation. And the inflammation that I'm talking about is, is not like, you know, when you get a burn or a cut or a laceration, that's a, a real acute inflammatory response. We're talking about a low grade chronic inflammation. And it's that type of inflammation that is linked with these impairments in fat burning. And Wendy, the reason why that is, is because the immune system is very smart. It, it releases these things called cytokines. Your listeners have probably heard of CRP or C-reactive protein. That's one of these type of immune signaling molecules, but other common ones are TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, interferon gamma. We can go on and on down the list. And what these, they're just communication molecules, you know, just like when you get your mail, that's a way to communicate. That's what a cytokine is. But these cytokines also augment metabolic physiology. And what I mean by that is they induce insulin resistance. So not only do they recruit more white blood cells and, and more macrophages and different immune cells to the site of the inflammation, which could be in the gut, it could be in the brain, it could be in the joint tissue in the case of, of arthritis and autoimmunity, but they also at the same time antagonize insulin signaling. And it's again, by design, it, the immune system has evolved to do this, to raise that glucose because they're looking for that very quick energetic response. Whereas when you're not inflamed, your immune cells are thriving off lipids and they're burning fat. And so again, it just goes back to 
Don't just focus on your metabolic system and meal timing and calories and exercise and cardio, but really focus on reducing the inflammation, healing your gut, healing your gut microbiome, and eating anti-inflammatory foods so that you can keep your body in a fat-burning state. Yeah, I've definitely noticed uh, for myself personally when uh, you know when people have a slowed metabolism, they naturally gravitate towards eating more sugar and craving more sugar because it gives them that quick energy because their body doesn't burn fat very efficiently for fuel. Um, it takes a while. And so that's one thing I do on my mineral power program. And I, I use hair mineral analysis to determine people's metabolic rate and then uh, slowly try to transition it to uh, a more normal metabolism, hopefully fast. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Uh, but, like uh, but yeah, it's, that's a big problem. A lot of people beat themselves up because they are attracted to sugar or alcohol or things that give them that quick energy. But it's, it's biology. You're going to be attracted to those things if you know you're not able to burn fat efficiently for fuel. What do you think about that? I I completely agree with that, and um, not just about foods, but also mindset too. And we talked about that sympathetic and parasympathetic response. A great way to like you can eat all the right foods but you can still be inflamed because there's this whole field of psychoneuroimmunology, psychoneuroimmune endocrinology. And so we know that um, our thoughts influence both our endocrine system and our immune system. And it's so powerful. And not only that, but there's this uh, what's called a parasympathetic reflex response. And you actually can stimulate the production of a very powerful anti-inflammatory cytokine-like molecules in the body by being in that vagal nerve state. And when individuals are in a meditative state, I like heart math. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but heart rate variability monitoring is an excellent tool to give people real-time feedback. And by being in that calm state, you put the brakes on the inflammatory response and you put the gas pedal on the anti-inflammatory response, which will help to pivot you in the fat burning state. It will help to calm you know, any cravings and things you have for junk food. And also more importantly, in my opinion, is it helps to give that digestive firepower towards the GI tract so that we have the motility, we have the release of different uh, secondary immune products, we have the release of gut hormones and and uh, mobility and so forth. So I think that's really an important under-recognized component is modulating the stress response to calm down the immune system. That's what I'm trying to do when I have a sugar craving. I try to go meditate. There you go, right. <laughs> Just yeah. put it out of my mind. Um, so let's get back to, uh, to gut bugs. Um, sure. So where does it all begin? Like, and you know, how do early feeding and antibiotic usage cause you know immune and weight issues later in life? Yeah, this to me is very fascinating, Wendy. And uh, when I first discovered this, it was around the time that um, my daughter was just a little guy in my wife's tummy, and so really dove into this quite heavy. But it turns out we're born somewhat sterile, although the research is showing that we're not exactly sterile because the placenta does have some microbes and there's this complex enteromammary recycling and, and the mother's milk, you know, before the baby's born changes its microflora composition. But we'll talk about that at another time. But anyway, let's just go with the analogy that we're pretty much sterile when we're born. And the first microbes that we're exposed to really colonize our, uh, our naive GI tract, because that's where most of these microbes are living. Some on our skin, some in our mouth and our ears and our nose, but mostly the large number of these different microbes. And again, at the adult level, if you were to quantify all these microbes in the entire body, it'd be a hundred trillion single-celled microorganisms. So quite a few, over a thousand different species, and so on. But so the very first, you know, we're kind of inoculated um, when we're born, and 
So the birthing method has a uh, impact on shaping or cultivating, you know, the type of microbes that end up forming permanent residencies in our body. So let's just go with the traditional vaginal delivery. We're exposed to our mother's fecal matter, which I know it sounds gross, but that actually does provide some good bifidobacterium and lactobacilli for us. Also, the vaginal canal is loaded with healthy gut bacteria or healthy gut, healthy bacteria. And so that's getting in the baby's mouth, in the nose, in the ears, eyes, and so forth. And that sets up a really nice, stable foundation for which as the GI tract begins to develop in the toddler, uh, a, a nice foundation for healthy gut bacteria. In contrast, individuals that are born via C-section, they're immediately exposed to this, the uh, bacteria in the hospital on skin workers and in the ambient air. That's Clostridium difficile, also known as C. diff, or Staphylococcus aureus. And as we know, these are some of the some of the bacteria that are now antibiotic resistant. These are more pathogenic, more pro-inflammatory. So again, we talked about when the immune system is inflamed, it's more in a sugar burning, not in a fat burning mode. So we're really priming uh, our children via C-section, unfortunately, to be in a more a low-grade inflammatory state because these microbes are not the nicest ones on the block. You'd much rather have your mother's poop than the bacteria from the skin of hospital workers, unfortunately. And as such, there's a higher prevalence of autoimmunity, asthma, allergies, and obesity in individuals that are born via C-section all throughout life, but uh, they've looked at earliest age three. These uh, babies or toddlers at that point have more belly fat and more visceral adipose tissue. And we know that the more belly fat you have, the more immune cells you have in fat, the more inflamed it is. Fat releases leptin and all these pro-inflammatory hormones. So that's obviously not a good thing. So the next thing we look at after birthing would be uh, the first six months of life exposure to antimicrobial compounds. Um, children that are given antibiotics during the first six months of life have a somewhat permanent alteration in their gut microbiome that's linked again with asthma, allergies, autoimmunity, and guess what? Obesity. So this was, this isn't like, you know, weird nutritional journals publishing this. This is JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Mainstream researchers are making this connection. Um, a great book out there uh, by Martin Blazer talks about this. He's a researcher in New York, and he's huge on uh, like really reevaluating re uh, antimicrobial compounds, antibiotics, and their impact in our entire world and life. So big no-no, uh, even in adults, but particularly the first six months of life, studies show that's really a problem. And then we'll talk about food in the in the infant. Um, again, that that the window for food is the first year of life, and it's really important. Uh, breast milk is, is so important for developing and cultivating the neonatal GI tract and forming healthy bugs in there, and also cultivating the immune system because our immune system is really kind of immature and not very sophisticated, you know, during the first couple of years of life. And the beneficial compounds from breast milk, we're talking about immunoglobulins, prebiotics, which are the fuel for good gut bacteria and other immune stimulatory compounds found in breast milk. So that's why breastfed babies tend to have less of a prevalence of, again, asthma, allergies, autoimmunity, and obesity throughout the lifespan. And we could also talk about in the first year exposure to gluten and other food sensitivities. And I know this is kind of a, an emerging topic. There's several case studies of this that have emerged out of Europe in the last couple of years. And 
And guess what? Even individuals that don't have a genetic susceptibility towards you know, celiac or gluten sensitivity, if they are fed gluten, gluten during the first year of life, tend to have uh, higher prevalences of sensitivities to different food antigens. And actually their gut microbiome has shifted. Wow. I have a couple of different, it, the, to me, that was crazy. When I read wow, that, I couldn't amazing. believe it. So anyway, that's the gist of it. And that's how we can screw things up and, and whether we know it or not. So I talk about this in the book quite extensively and wanted to offer this because I think a lot of people can be hard on themselves. Like I exercise right, I eat right, and I still can't lose weight. And I think we need to really go back and look at our early life and how that ex those experiences may give us insight into how aggressive we need to work on our GI tract. Because if you're eating all the right foods and exercising and you're still having trouble burning fat, um, you might need to really go look at your gut microbiome and you may need lifelong support or maybe, you know, fecal transplantation or who knows, um, heavy probiotic support, prebiotic support, because these are quasi permanent changes. And we need, this is a, a huge system that plays a big impact in our metabolic physiology. So what probiotics do you take? Everyone yeah, wants that's, to take what you're taking. For sure. <laughs> um, you know, I love the probiotic yeast, actually. It's called Saccharomyces boulardii. Mm. A lot of people tend to think of this when they take antibiotics because that's what it's been clinically studied to do. But Saccharomyces boulardii does so much more. It uh, increases immunoglobulin A, which is a healthy immunoglobulin in the GI tract. That helps to neutralize pathogens. That helps if you do have leaky gut, it will help to you know give your... Uh, give a little bit more mucosal barrier support. It also helps to rebuild the barrier. So it has what's called trophic activity, which means that the tight junctions can form, you know, tighter bonds. And, and also it, it's been shown to neutralize endotoxin and endotoxin is a uh, component found on bacteria that's really pro-inflammatory. And we all have endotoxin-containing bacteria in our GI tract. Some are good, some are bad. But the, the problem becomes when we have leaky gut, this endotoxin particle will cross the gut barrier and really fire the alarm bells of the immune system, driving inflammation. And again, not to be repetitive, but inflammation is li linked with impaired fat burning. So you don't want that. And uh, uh, Saccharomyces boulardii has been shown to offset endotoxin absorption. So the so probiotic. You can get that in kombucha, right? That's the bacteria in kombucha. You get enough? It's on the bottom. Yeah, it's on. Yeah, absolutely. So fermented foods is a great way to get it, Wendy. You can get it in a supplemental form. Just look for one that is dairy free. It's lyophilized uh, Saccharomyces boulardii. Flora stores one. There's many others now. Um, and then when it comes to probiotics, I really like Bifidobacterium based strains. Um, a lot of, you know, you go to Whole Foods or a retail store and you get a probiotic. There's oftentimes uh, like 27 different strains and so forth, but I really look at the strain specificity. So the analogy that I like to use, Wendy, is if you were walking down the street in New York and you got mugged by a six foot five white male, you wouldn't call the police and say a homo sapien robbed you, right? <laughs> you would be more specific. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, you know, it really, when it comes down to probiotic supplementation, lactobacillus acidophilus is not lactobacillus acidophilus. There's, you know, there's like about 27 different types of lactobacillus acidophilus. There's LA-14, NCFM, 
you know, uh, DDS1, there's many different types. And so just like, you know, if you were to describe someone to uh, a policeman or something like an eyewitness, you would talk about hair color, height, eye color, and uh, build and structure. That's that's noted on on uh, probiotics now. So you have like, say, Bifidobacterium lactis, HNO19. So that's that, you know, hair color, height, weight. And that's going to tell you how that probiotic will affect you. And it could be good or it could be bad. And so I really would just uh, keep an eye on that. Yeah, because those are the clinically proven strains that have the number after them. Exactly. So we know the safety. We know that they're resistant to stomach acid, resistant to bile, resistant to pepsin, and that they have a good adherence to the GI mucosa. With these other just off-the-shelf cheap lactobacillus acid office, you really don't know exactly. So I think for the listeners, that's the biggest thing is make sure that you're getting that social security number of that genus and species, and then also focus on bifidobacterium heavy uh, genre. So um, a recent study, I just wrote a blog a post about this showed that we all know that lactobacillus is so healthy. Everyone talks about that, but actually individuals with type two diabetes have higher levels of lactobacillus in their GI tract. Is that a cause or consequence? I don't really know, but it, there's never been an association that, to my knowledge, that links bifidobacterium with metabolic challenges. But there, it, with lactobacillus, it's kind of gray right now, which I know for a lot of people, they're like shaking their heads like, no way that can't be. But I'm telling you, I've looked at a lot of this research and lactobacillus, again, is in that gray area, whereas bifidobacterium, it's in the green, it's clear. We know it's not linked with autoimmunity, asthma, allergies, or obesity. So I would say focus on bifidobacterium-based probiotics. And that's what's in your colon, correct? The bifido? bifido exactly, yeah. And bifido is is... Is it, and it's in the small intestine as well, but like you mentioned, a larger extent in the colon, it's anti-inflammatory. It actually helps to increase the release of these different gut hormones that affect appetite and satiety. It helps to improve gut barrier function. Um, let's see, it also increases the level of these L cells in the intestine, which release these beneficial metabolic hormones that now the drug companies and bariatric surgery is uh, actually increasing these hormones. So bifidobacterium, I think, at the end of the day, is really where you want to head. Okay, okay. So uh, how does, uh, let's talk about hormones, because um, hormones is obviously the, one of the big drivers of weight gain. Um, so how is the gut connected to hormones that regulate you know, blood sugar, insulin, and ultimately our waistline? Absolutely, yeah. Great point. You know, for a long time, we've been focusing on this uh, Again, I call it like the two-dimensional metabolic model. So you eat some sort of food and maybe it contains sugar or fat or what have you. Uh, your blood lipids and your blood carbohydrates are going to rise. So then the pancreas releases a hormone called insulin and that's going to kind of open the door on your cells to deposit these different molecules of sugar and, and help to process lipids. But we know that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense because how is a pancreas going to know that blood sugar is rising? You know, maybe there's some feedback with the brain. But the new the new model shows that you know the GI tract is really responsible for sensing the different nutrients that are coming in, but also telling the rest of the body how to partition them and and what to do with them when they come in. And uh, it makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like a shipping and receiving department, you know. So I use the analogy of like Amazon when they're getting a lot of incoming new goods, whether it's books or products or what have you, and you know they're not going to accept raw materials and goods at say two a.m. You know they're open during nine to five during business hours and. Once these things come in, um, they're tagged appropriately and, and partitioned to different uh, places for fulfillment and storage. And 
that's what the GI tract really is. It's a, you know, fulfillment, you know, shipping and receiving type center. So the minute you smell, taste, see food, the GI tract is already beginning to work and tell the rest of the body where it should go, how it should be handled. And so individuals, for example, that don't chew their food properly, that just take big gulps and are eating under stress, their body's not partitioning those nutrients appropriately. They're more insulin resistant. They generally weigh more. And these are clinical studies. It's not me making it up. I reference it all in in the book, Belly Fat Effect. So Researchers have discovered, uh, and they've realized this since 1965, this is a long time ago, it still is slowly permeating its way into medicine that the small intestine releases some, and this is their own words, humoral-like substance that tells the body that blood glucose is rising. And this humoral-like substance is, you know, we now call them incretins. And these are the category of hormones that are responsible uh, for really governing 70%, between 50 and 70% of insulin's activity, which is so important because we think that we have insulin under control. You know, just eat low glycemic foods and you're going to be okay. But there's way more to the story than that. It's because more complicated. Way more complicated. Yeah. So that's the the short and sweet version of it, sure. Wendy, is the, the GI tract releases all these different hormones that affect insulin, that affect appetite, satiety, inflammatory responses, and more. The take-home message is everything that we've talked about today, having a good, healthy GI tract, healthy GI tract motility, being in that calm, parasympathetic state, eating fiber and polyphenols, all help to increase the release of these beneficial gut hormones, the so-called incretin hormones, and that will in turn translate into a healthy insulin response. And insulin is so important, as you know, because if you're insulin resistant, you really can't access fat to be burned. You're really in a sugar burning state. So again, it comes back to the GI tract and focusing on gut health and these gut hormones. That's like catch 22, or if you're overweight, you have a more difficult time losing weight. And if you're thinner, you have a harder time gaining weight. It's kind of not fair. <laughs> right. <all. laughs> so how, yeah, do, how can someone overcome those hurdles of uh, being overweight, being inflamed, um, having, um, you know, releasing too much insulin? And, you know, there's a lot of people that hit their 40s and, and, and after and they are they're overweight, 10, 20 pounds, they're beginning to become insulin resistant. How can they turn things around? Yeah, great point. Um, again, I think the strategies are very simple. Um, we'll, let's just start throughout the morning of the day and what a day would look like, for example. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is the circadian clock system. And just like the gut hormones and the gut bacteria are so important, uh, we have this circadian clock system that governs the control and release of all these different hormones. And it, it oscillates with the rise and fall of the sun. And so it's very important to start your day off with getting natural light if you can, because that's going to help to get your hormones in their proper balance. And the reason why that's important is because a lot of people are circadian malaligned. They're sleeping at odd hours. They're, you know, uh, you know, going to bed at, you know, 10 PM during the week. And then they go to bed at one or 2 PM on the weekends and, or they're eating food late and so forth. So it just screws up the whole body's uh, rhythm. So I think it's very important to get a good night's rest, have the lights out by 10. If you're on the computer, get flux or something that will block the UV or the blue light um, and take melatonin, get a good night's sleep. So that's starting the day off right. 
And I'm a big believer in eating majority of your day's food in the morning and at lunch. And I know that kind of goes against, you know, there's the carb night program that's big on the internet right now. But <laughs> if we look at the GI tract, I'm just looking at this from a hard science standpoint. I mean, if you're a high-end athlete and the carb night's working for you, that's great. You know, but I think for the majority of people, eating a lot of their carbohydrates at night will be problematic. And that's what most, let's face it, most Americans are doing that anyway. Having a bit of pasta dinner with bread and wine and beer and and 68% of Americans are either overweight or obese. So I think what we need to do is go back to, you know, things like in Ayurvedic medicine, you know, supper was derived from the word, you know, support or soup. And so it's really the GI tract is most active in the morning and middle part of the day. And so I think for a lot of people, you mentioned simple strategies, you got to eat breakfast and you got to eat a big lunch. And I see that so commonly when I was working with clients and now even working with doctors is people take lunch kind of lightly and, oh, I'll just have a big dinner because it's with my family and so on. And and it's very you know not uncommon for people just to have a protein shake or a Diet Coke and a muffin or something like that. But I think that's really going to set yourself up for not only you're going to be weaker if you work out, which I highly recommend and we can talk about, but again, that's when the GI tract is most prime. You're most insulin sensitive during the, you know, the morning and middle part of the day and all the, the digestive products and, you know, pancreatic bicarbonate and all these molecules are highest. So, you know, get a good night's sleep, eat a lot of calories during the middle part of the day and do strength training. I think this is a huge mistake that as individuals age and or women in general tend to just focus on cardio or, I mean, they do CrossFit, which I think CrossFit is really great, but I think you also need to incorporate strength training into CrossFit because CrossFit is kind of a medium intensity or it's high intensity, but it's a lot of aerobic based. And I think, um, uh, even though people are scared of having lean muscle, you know, cause they feel like they're going to look like a bodybuilder. That's really hard to do, yeah. you know? It takes a lot of effort and even, you know, pharmaceutical medication, i.e. steroids to get really super big. So um, the importance of doing just these compound movements like squats, deadlifts, cleans, military presses, pushups, and so on is you're going to build a lean muscle and muscle is where you burn fat. You don't burn fat in very limited amounts in other tissues in the body, mostly muscle tissue, if you want to burn significant amounts of fat. So by default, the more lean muscle mass you have, the more fat you're going to burn at rest. So I think that's very important. And especially for women and as individuals age, because it's going to help reset your metabolism as well, increase testosterone, increase growth hormone, both of which help men and women to burn fat better and balance their metabolism. So that's the other strategy. I like three to four days a week minimum. I like five days a week of strength training and breaking up and working out each muscle group to failure to high intensity um, to really maintain that lean muscle tissue to fight aging increase bone mineral density and so forth. Yeah, when I've lost weight or had periods in my life where I needed to lose weight, that's how I've done it, is doing yeah. a high-intensity yoga, weightlifting, and things like that. Um, that Those have been very, very effective. Not the cardio so much, for sure. Yeah. So so how does... Um, let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned in your book. You mentioned uh, fat bugs and lean bugs. I really sure. like that. <laughs> so, yeah. so what foods exactly fuel the fat guys and which foods fuel the lean guys? Yeah. So we've kind of touched on it, but the, the polyphenols, so anything with color. So that's the biggest thing that, you know, when I'm shopping or encouraging people when they go to the grocery store, like, 
you know, some people get so confused when they go to the store, like, what should I buy? I don't know what to do. And just focus on foods with color. That's it. If it has a color, whether it's red, green, yellow, orange, purple, blue, if it has a color and it's a fruit or vegetable, I'm not talking about like, you know, colored, you know, fruit loops here. Okay. But colored fruits and vegetables have these compounds called polyphenols. They're very hard, you know, big complex molecules. They're hard to break down and your skinny bugs, so to speak, your healthy bugs have the enzymes to do something with them, to break them down. So just by eating a diet rich in polyphenols, you're going to help to foster the growth of healthy bacteria in your GI tract. So that's my biggest thing when it comes to like fat burning foods. Well, what can you do? A lot of people are focused on stimulants and green tea, which is good and caffeine and all these different compounds, but I'm not really so much a fan of the stimulant based approach. Just focus on healthy foods that are going to improve your gut microbiome. So we're talking about berries. We're talking about spinach, kale, chard, those are easy vegetables to cut up and saute in a, in a pan with ghee, butter, or coconut oil. You know, it takes like five minutes and you can eat them anytime. You know, it doesn't, I eat them for breakfast, for a snack. You can do it for dinner. Um, kids love it. Mince in some onions. Uh, leeks are another um, healthy polyphenolic food, but also leeks and onions, for example, have uh, different prebiotic fibers. So prebiotics are the fuel for health, for bacteria, basically. They're, they're the fuel that makes them go and thrive. And so focusing on foods rich in prebiotic fiber, which would include, like I said, garlic, onions, leeks. Um, you can do apples, yams, sweet potatoes. That's another good way to go because not only are they healthy, clean forms of carbohydrates, um, the sweet potatoes do have some carotenoids, which are a good polyphenolic compound as well. Uh, but also the prebiotic fiber component is going to help bifidobacterium grow. So that's my thing is just focus on real foods. I mean, if you know, you, my wife and I, if you look at our house or our kitchen, when we have friends come over that are kind of not there yet, when it comes to nutrition, like, what do you guys eat? Like, what do you mean? We have tons of fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, lean protein. What do you want? They're like, no, I mean, you have some chips or something like that. And it's like, just get rid of all that stuff. If you just cook your food from scratch, I think is the easiest thing to do. Yeah. So how does food hanging around in your gut make your, your gut bacteria extract more calories from what you eat and you know ultimately lead to weight gain? Yeah, that's a huge, interesting topic. Um, so studies have shown that individuals that are overweight, they, they're, their gut bugs or gut bacteria are really efficient at harvesting energy from the food that they eat. And so it's a combination of the composition of the gut microbiome that they have. Like, do they have imbalances in in gut bugs or is it a combination of the motility? So sluggish GI motility. So I think people need to realize, okay, like I should be going number two, pooping at least twice a day, you know, preferably after meals and so forth. Majority in the morning should the GI tract is really active in the morning. That's why most people generally go to the bathroom in the morning. But it was not uncommon for me to work with individuals that, you know, they would go to the bathroom, they would go number two once a week, you know? And so if we think about, well, what does that really mean? Well, that's food just sitting there, you know, hanging out in the gut, in the colon and partially the intestine. But, you know, again, that's the colon is where majority of your microbes live. And so they're sitting there, they're thriving, they're fermenting, you know, think of that like a kombucha factory, you know, they're sitting there thriving on that food and they can extract and form what are called secondary byproducts. So we have volatile organic compounds, which are really nasty, cause cancer and so forth. We have sulfur containing compounds, which are really nasty. 
And the compounds that are actually linked with um, increased belly fat and obesity would be the short chain fatty acids. So these compounds, again, bacteria act on our food, they ferment it and they create these, these byproducts. Short chain fatty acids, uh, some of which are healthy, a butyrate, for example, is the fuel for colonocytes. It's very anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer and so on. But uh, acetate and propionate can drive the formation of new lipids. Now, the jury's mixed on, you know, which, what ratios do you want to have? It's kind of a 70-30-20, type thing, uh, whereas, you know, uh, butyrate is very healthy, but propionate can drive lipids and acetate can affect neurotransmitter function and so on. But without getting into the details of, of all that, you really just want to improve your gut motility. Because if you have sluggish gut motility, your colonic bacteria are going to make going to really harvest the energy uh, out of that. So even if you are eating a low calorie diet, if you have sluggish GI motility, your gut bugs can extract more calories from that and make you fat. So um, I think if people are not pooping regularly, uh, address that. Is it uh, a stress-related issue? Is it how you're eating? Is it the type of food you're eating? Or it could be the type of bugs in your GI tract. We know that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is linked with constipation and and bouts of diarrhea and IBS-like symptoms. So motility is critical. And it, motility also comes back, Wendy, to the circadian clock. If you're eating when you shouldn't be, i.e. at night, you're going to have motility challenges as well. Yeah, yeah so um, so let's talk about fat cells um, <laughs> or, or high-fat diets. Um, how are high-fat high diets an issue when it comes to gut dysbiosis? Yeah, so... We know fat is in right now, and rightfully so. I think you know we made a huge mistake in terms of you know our uh, governmental food programming and dietary recommendations and getting rid of fat and you know replacing fat with sugar. But the, the only caveat with fat is that endotoxin-containing bacteria. So that we talked about, we all have about five grams of endotoxin in our GI tract. Uh, endotoxin is very pro-inflammatory uh, bacterial particulate. It's figured out a way to piggyback in dietary fat to make its way into the body. So even if you have healthy fats, which we would think like butter, we'd think like ghee, olive oil, in excessive amounts, which what is excess? I mean, it really depends on your gut health and um, you know what that food's combined with. But I would say a quote-unquote high-fat or a ketogenic diet may fall into that excess category and inadvertently lead to increase what we call absorption of endotoxin. So individuals can inadvertently be creating inflammation, even though they're eating a seemingly healthy paleo type diet. So I'm not saying avoid eating those fats. I'm not saying that at all, but we need to, you know, include polyphenolic compounds when we eat high fat. So that would include garlic, that would include onions, that would include green tea, red wine, that would include uh, even polyphenols from fruit and vegetables. So it's very important. Anytime I saute meat, for example, which we cook a lot of, you know, bacon and, and sausage and so forth, we always mince onions and garlic and per, uh, turmeric or curcumin on that because that's going to help to offset that endotoxin absorption. And there's many different studies that have shown that they've actually uh, researchers in Europe and in the U S have used uh, heavy cream. They've used butter. They've documented this with olive oil and uh, shown that these different fats, so it's not a chain length issue or an unsaturated versus saturated fat issue. It's just a fat in general um, tends to be problematic. And they've shown that, you know, 
if an, an individual has a really high fat meal or a shake or something like that, but they also have a high fat meal with some polyphenol, uh, which would include green tea, resveratrol, curcumin, anything that the, the high fat meal plus polyphenol offsets the endotoxin absorption. So I think the take home message is keep eating your high fat diet if it's working for you, but include more polyphenols because that's kind of the missing link. In my opinion, that's not really being talked about much in the whole paleo keto world. Yeah. I think people have gone to extremes like before it was no fat and now it's super, super high fat. And we got to come into the middle with moderation. It's, uh, it's not either or it's about moderation because you know, like I said, people with a uh, slow metabolism don't burn fat that efficiently for fuel. So they're the last people that want to be eating a really high fat diet. Yeah, I think it's more about moderation. I agree. In my opinion. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about the, the, uh, the immune system and how Uh that affects our, our, our waistline. So how exactly are our immune cells making us fat? Sure. Yeah. You know, so, um, Basically, we can talk about the fat cells in general. And, and, you know, if we pinch our belly fat or pinch our thighs or our buttocks or whatever, um, we generally think we're, we're pinching fat. But really, if you were to take a piece of that, cut it up and put it under a microscope, particularly belly fat, not so much peripheral subcutaneous fat, but around the midsection, the handles and in front of like where your abdominal muscles are. If you look on a cellular basis, if you were to break that up in a, in, under a microscope, you'd see on a cellular basis, um, uh, particularly and compare that, compare belly fat from lean individuals compared to overweight or obese individuals, you'd see a huge number of immune cells in the overweight, obese individuals. And the reason for that is because fat is really inflammatory. Fat releases a uh, immune slash metabolic hormone called leptin. Leptin is a pleiotropic, what they call pleiotropic adipocytokine, and it's both a metabolic and an immune hormone. And it actually perturbs immune signaling in such a way that it enables uh, a kind of a ramp up of the immune system and what's called immune tolerance. Um, So the ability for the immune system to kind of tolerate different bad guys and and put out little fires and fights and and ruckuses, um, that goes away when leptin is elevated. So there's a particular type of white blood cell. And again, don't want to get too complicated here because we can dive into this at much depth, but I want to keep it practical is the T regulatory cell is a very protective type of immune cell. It's involved in, again, suppressing autoimmune disease, suppressing cancer, suppressing inflammation, but Leptin uh, renders the T regulatory cell inactive. And that's how, uh, why we see a, a lot of inflammatory cells in and around fat tissue, in and around the thyroid tissue, and, and higher prevalences of autoimmunity and inflammatory diseases with obesity. And Again, these immune cells, they're being, you know, they're being stimulated by inflammation from the gut or toxins from the environment, what have you. And we don't have the T regulatory cells. Uh, to kind of calm them down because leptin is wiping out the T regulatory cells. And these immune cells, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, they're, they love sugar. You know, when they're stimulated, they burn sugar, not fat. So they can get in and around fat tissue, reprogram the localized environment and foster a state of sugar burning and you're not burning fat, you know? And so what's really interesting about um, overweight individuals and their fat tissue is it's insulin resistant. And as we talked about, Wendy, if you're insulin resistant, you can't burn fat. And insulin resistant adipocytes are are not releasing and uh, 
you know, enabling the muscle tissue to burn their stored depots as efficiently. So it comes back to just really basic insulin resistance and inflammation. Yeah. So how does the immune system wear out making people overweight, uh, you know, more likely to get gut infections? Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, we know that there's a higher prevalence of, uh, or a decreased susceptibility I'm sorry, increased susceptibility towards uh, pathogenic, like lethal infections, for example, uh, different viruses and so forth in individuals that are overweight. We know that surgical recovery times are, are longer and not as good. Um, so the immune system does experience a state of somewhat of a burnout. So this, this chronic low-grade inflammation, I don't know exactly the mechanism of how, but the immune system is basically kind of gets burnt out. And so when it comes to defending itself from a lethal pathogen, what that could be tuberculosis, cholera, that could be even whooping cough or some sort of virus, because it's chronically being stimulated from say leaky gut or, um, you know, over full fat cells and, and leptin and so on, that uh, the immune system is not able to fully mount a response. And so both the ability to make antibodies and secrete, um, you know, cell mediated responses diminish. And so I think it's very important from just a long-term health standpoint. We know, I mean, with the Ebola thing that's going on right now in the East Coast and and um, and in Africa, you know, I think this is a re very real concern. And so I think for people, you know, the motivation to, to get into the gym, to eat right, to eat real foods, eat more color, eat more fiber, sleep better uh, is huge because, um, you know, these infections and, and microbes are getting more and more resistant to our treatment modalities and so on. So that's a great point about that immune system burnout. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I have one question I like to ask all of my guests. Sure. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Yeah, well, I'm going to say it's the alterations in our, our uh, microflora, you know, both in our, in our food supply. So we're using so much antibiotics and pesticides and things in our food supply. Um, you know, the almonds are now irradiated, so they have no healthy you know, bacteria on them. Um, you know, 33% of all burrs now are via C-section and which is up, I think, you know, 50% from just five years ago. Uh, you know, we're taking antibiotics for anything we can think of, you know, a little ear infection, kids are given antibiotics. So I think that's a huge concern because, um, you know, as we're seeing and, you know, as the book, is, you know, describes in great depth is these microbes really play a huge role, not only in our own bodies, but our entire ecosystem. So I think we need to just get back to conventional farming and, and avoid all these different antibiotics and grow some of our own food and, and let our kids play in the dirt and uh, not take antibiotics. Absolutely. <laughs> well, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and where they can find you? Sure, Wendy. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So my website is mikemutzel.com, M-U-T-Z-E-L.com. I have a podcast in iTunes similar to, to yourself there, Wendy, High Intensity Health Radio, where I interview experts that I've met over the last eight years in functional medicine and fitness. And uh, the book, Belly Fat Effect, Effect is uh, available on Amazon or in the Barnes and Noble in the Nook or Kindle. So if people want to dive into this research, they can go there and check that out as well. Yeah. And listeners, I highly recommend you guys go check out his book. I took a peek at it for a few days before we did this interview. It's such an amazing book and will clue you in to so many reasons why you may be struggling to lose weight, um, even though you're doing what Mike said, eating a healthy diet, 
exercising uh, to, you know, to your dying <laughs> and uh, in living a healthy lifestyle, it's not enough. And that's, um, there's so many other factors that you need to look at. And that's also one of the things I address as well with my mineral power program is uh, healing the adrenals and thyroid so that you can correct your metabolism permanently. So there's many, many things that go into a healthy waistline. So Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Wendy. I'm honored and really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So listeners, if you want to go check out uh, my website, you can find me on liveto110.com. You can learn all about the modern paleo diet, my version of paleo, and my mineral power program using a hair mineral analysis. And uh, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at I will live to 110. And thank you so much for listening to the live to 110 podcast.